Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Best Beach Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pacquiao, and this time I'm joined by my friend, influencer in my life, not like social media style influencer, but influencer in my life, John Collins. John is the uh, chief creative officer and board chair at the Bible Project. Let me give you the official background on John and then as it relates to me. John, let me know if I leave anything out. You're doing great. <laughs> John was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. He's been married for 18 years and has two boys. Good job of putting family first in your bio. He received a BA in Bible and theology at Multnomah University, worked overseas in Christian ministry for years, then served for a year as a pastor. And then everything changed. John explored digital communication and the world has never been the same. I always, I always talk about you as the one who invented explainer videos. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I'll take it. Google Wave was the first explainer video I ever saw. And that's me is something that I still call upon in my brain. You know, uh, so explainer videos kind of, there's a deep uh, history in the Pacific Northwest with explainer videos. Um, there were people doing it before me. And there, one guy in Seattle, um, in particular, Common Craft, Lee Lefever. Oh, Lee Lefever. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of like the godfather mm. of explainer, in my mind, of explainer videos. He's in Seattle. He wrote the, what is that book called? Why am I not remembering it? Make it simple. No. I feel like it's behind me right now. The Art of Explanation. Got it. That's a great title. Yeah. I want to write that book. I, I remember a concept that he had in there, very basic, but most people skip over it, is give the audience a frame of reference that's familiar to them when you're trying to explain something else. Boom. There's the nugget. We could be done. He was, he, um, so the, the video that put him on the map, I think was explaining, uh, Twitter or Dropbox Twitter, man. But this was like 20, you know, 15 years ago, Twitter was brand new. He played RSS and he would just use these simple cutout Love characters it. filmed overhead with the camera and it's just in his peaceful, oh. his peaceful voice, his friendly Mr. Rogers' voice, you know? He's great. I, I wish he was my friend. There's still time. There's still time. Uh, let me finish your bio. John started Epiphio, Epiphio mm. Studios in 2009. Mm -hmm. The story that I always remember there is that you, you put out this video, you and one of your friends put out this animated video, blaming Google Wave. Nobody, there was all this buzz about Google Wave. Nobody understood what it was. You created this explainer video. I think that as the legend goes, you posted it on YouTube before you went mm -hmm. to bed, woke up the next morning and it was <laughs> on the front page of Lifehacker, right? Yeah. Something like that. Something I don't remember like that. The, I don't remember the website. And but, then, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was all over. It went, it went viral. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then Google called us, um, you know, uh, so what was I going to say? Oh, Google wave. This kind of dates us because when I talk to people now, they have no idea. This, that was a blip on the radar. Like, what the heck right. was Google Wave? And you know what Google Wave was? It's basically Slack. It was Slack. Yes. They invented Slack 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't I work. Showed, it's so funny because I've, I've showed that video at workshops and people are like, that sounds like Slack. And I think to myself, I don't know what the difference is. It was totally Slack. Yeah, it was the um, Lars Rasmussen was the guy who um, 
he invented Google Maps, him and his brother or cousin or something. And um, they and Google Maps was so successful for Google that they just were like, guys, you could build anything you want next. What do you want to build? And this was their brainchild. It was the proto slack. And um, and it just was wrong timing. I don't know. It's just how do you anyways? It was, it was too much. It was too early. I mean, that we've seen that digitally in history. Yeah. That sometimes the right idea is just too early. And then someone comes out with almost the same exact thing and it works later. And you're just dropping so truth bombs here early. today. It was, just, it was too early. It's too early. It's all about timing. Uh, John has always been. So I've always thought of you as a storyteller. And it's partially because in my own origin story, John, John Collins is a character. So John, I've always described you as you're like the, your personality is very much the, the guy who's playing poker and like isn't playing very many hands. And then you go in and, and I'm like, oh, shoot, he's got something. You know, like I, I freak out. <laughs> they call that tight because, aggressive. Because, but that, that's how I that. feel like that's how I feel like you are with with your wisdom as well. Because I remember when I was way back in the day when I was presenting at Nike, like like Mike got asked to present at Nike. Nobody knew who I was. I had no idea what I was going to talk about. I, I sat down with you at Jim and Patty's and I, I gave you my ideas for this talk. And you said, and I remember you kind of took your time, like sipped, sipped your coffee and you're like, well, tension building, right? <laughs> like it's good, but you know, you know, there's a woman who gave a Ted talk on like this exact same subject. You should just go watch it and like deliver that. So that was that was my introduction to Nancy Duarte. Nancy Duarte and worked for for like eight years, mm -hmm. and that all started because. But what's great about that is I didn't I didn't know her. I just was like you like this lady exists, and then you go and you like start working for her. Yeah, that's all. I mean, that's. But it doesn't it doesn't take that awesome. much to change people's lives. But my point there is just John has been pivotal in my own origin story for introducing me to Nancy and you're such a well this is where I wanted to start so people always call you a great storyteller because mm -hmm. you're able to bring things to life like uh, technology that people don't understand or right now you're working the Bible project which is it's not always like the cleanest text for people to read in 2022 it's a it's a big hard weird book certain certain parts of it more than others but so I think the the label that gets attached to you is storyteller, but that's not actually the label that you use for yourself. So what what is that label and why do you use that? <laughs> yeah, I um I was I really embraced storyteller at one point, probably around that time that you're talking about. Um it was very in vogue. Everyone wanted to be a storyteller and um and it was very marketable to call mm -hmm. yourself a storyteller. And uh, so I kind of pretended to be a storyteller. And um, I don't know exactly what happened, except for um, I just realized I, d I didn't know what I was talking about when people would be like, well, then how do you tell stories? I'd be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> don't actually. Because like I'm not a novelist. I'm not a screenwriter. I don't write stories. I'm not a story. Right. Like, and I was like, well, what do I do? Oh, I just explain things to help people understand them. And sometimes I use stories, but sometimes I don't use stories. 
my main goal is to explain so that people understand. And, um, you know, that the world of explainer videos was kind of this new world. It started getting, I think, a kind of a B rating reputation of just being really cheap, like doodly kind of things. Yeah. So a lot of people were moving away from the word explainer. And I was like, no, let's embrace the word explainer. So I just started calling myself an explainer. And, um, and I still do. And I don't know if that helps or does. It's good marketing, but like that helps me center. What am I actually doing? I'm explaining. I'm so explaining. you can understand. Uh, do you, do you uh, understand? I, I, I do. I love that. Our old joke is that you want to start a tagline. I wanted to start well. So I was moving out of the, the digital agency world and I was just going to do consulting work. This was before Bio Project took off. So that became my full time thing. But I was going to build a consultancy around explanation. And, um, and I, had a, uh, I had a jingle all ready to go. <laughs> and you loved it. I'm the only it's, one. I'm, I'm the only one. Completely original. There can't you possibly be for another us? friend that still that still holds you to this, but I believe it when we are explainers. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, it's catchy. I don't know. It just came to me in the middle of the night. So never started that consultancy shop. Um, I still think that's a great idea. If anyone wants to build that explainer consultancy. So let's talk about it, though. In all seriousness. I know I have worked with tech companies before where I don't understand what they're talking about and they want help. And, and I can feel the frustration on the person I'm trying to help as I ask them question after question to bring it down from non-technical level to something that Mike Pacquiao can actually understand. Yeah. It's what? the Homer Simpson quote, dumb it down a little bit more, a little <laughs> bit more, a little bit more. I don't like I don't like dumb it down though because it's not that your audience is dumb they're just like not in your exactly world, right? no that's a great point it's um you want to make it as simple as possible without oversimplifying it and it is true like your audience is not dumb yeah. that's that's one of my core principles is your audience is really smart they just they just don't have the time and luxury to have waded through all of this complexity on their own and by doing it for them you're just giving them a service because they're smart they're gonna get it. Mm. That's great. Oh, I really like that. Your audience is smart. Your audience is smart. Most of them. I mean, there's a couple duds in there. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. But... <laughs> uh, John, give us some tips on explaining difficult concepts. Well, I'll, here's a tip on when you're in the room with someone and you're trying to understand their thing. This has been the most helpful thing for me is before we get into it, I set the table by asking two permissions. I, I ask first, can I have permission to ask stupid questions? Mm. And I like to call them stupid questions because they're not going to be stupid questions, hopefully, but they feel stupid to me. Like when they're saying something that I don't understand, what I'm thinking is I should know this. I should know what that acronym means. I should know that word they just used. And I feel stupid. And so by just asking permission to be stupid in the room just clears the air. And, and it's because it's the same thing we talk about with the audience. The audience is smart. They're just uninformed. I'm also smart. I just, I don't know this world. Like yeah. I'll give me enough time 
and I'll catch up to speed. But like, I don't know yet. And so my temptation is just to let the conversation roll and let tons of questions pile up in my head that I keep to myself. So that permission is really important. And then the second one is to um, be a bit antagonistic. Um, that I'm going to stop you. I'm going to ask you to clarify. I'm going to say, is that really true? Because what about this? And all of that might feel antagonistic. And, and it might even be antagonistic. But the spirit of it is I want to understand. And I'm on your team. And these are the questions other people are going to be asking. So let's just get them out in the air. So I ask those two permissions. Can I ask stupid questions? Can I play devil's advocate? And then it's like we've had this secret handshake. And like it's, you know, everything goes really smooth after that. I love that. that, that I think that's a great quote. So your audience is smart. They're just uninformed. And that, that's a good way to think of yourself too. Yeah. So I'm a smart person. I'm just uninformed about this concept. Yeah. This is great. We're okay. writing a book right now. That's chapter oh, that's, three. This is good. Uh, so. we should re <laughs> Did we release this podcast? Okay. Uh. So let's say you're not working with someone else. This is, this is John Collins and he's sitting down and he, he read either a text from the Bible or, or some other thing that's complicated. How do you get it to a level of you understand it first and then you're able to explain it to other people? Well, if I can't have a dialogue with someone about it that's smarter than me, it's really hard. So mm. everything begins with a dialogue. Um, now some people think of reading like a dialogue, like I'm having a conversation with this author. I, I don't feel that way. Um, oh, I was talking so, to Charles Dickens the other night and you know what he told me? <laughs> yeah, that's a special, that's a special mind. Um, I'll have conversations with myself. Have you ever done this? Or it was only crazy people do this. I'll like, I will ask myself questions and then I'll answer the questions to myself. Mm. I'll interview myself. Have you ever interviewed yourself? No, but this is giving me such insight into the way that you podcast. Oh my keep, gosh. Keep going. So if I had, a, if I have to work out an idea, or let's say like I want to start something and I don't know how it's going to be accomplished, I'll go on a walk and I'll interview my future self that's already accomplished it. Hmm. And it's, it's so helpful. It's so, I, I imagine myself being like Terry Gross asking future John Collins, like, how did this happen? And how did you do this? And then like, by like the end of this dialogue, I'm like, oh, okay. Some things really snapped into place. Um, I'll do the same thing if I have to um, explain something complicated and I sort of understand it. I think I understand it. I imagine myself explaining it to my mom. So I'll, I'll have a dialogue in my head explaining it to my mom. And then sometimes my mom is around, so I get to try, try to do it with her. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it has to be a dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And if there's no one to talk to, I'll just talk to myself. You know, um, uh, when, when we started wearing AirPod, AirPods, you know, in your ears, it became like socially acceptable to talk to yourself <laughs> because this no one knows, nobody knows if you're on the phone or you're talking to yourself. And that was such a beautiful moment for me. It was just so much permission because it was always like I'd be walking around and I would try to have the conversation in my own head because I didn't want to be the crazy guy walking down the street. And every once in a while, I would realize like I'm talking out loud. And then I'd look around like who noticed and I'd feel awkward. But now, man, now no one ever knows. <laughs> the, you, one of the things that I've taken from your style that you do in videos that I, I've taken to the way that 
I present and when I write presentations for people is I ask questions out loud. Yeah. So do you do that when you're on a walk and talk? Because I've never, you're oh, always yeah. like, so how do we know that? Da, 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 da? Oh, yeah. It's always about a question. Yeah. It's chasing down the questions. That's how I've sometimes explained who you are when I say one of my friends co founded the Bible Project. They're always He's the like, guy that asks questions. <laughs> the guy that speaks Greek. No, the one who asks questions. That's the one. I yeah. <laughs> when people, um, when I meet people who do listen to our podcast, that's what they say. They're like, thank mm -hmm. you for asking the question that's in my head. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes it really is in their head. And I think sometimes the question is kind of in your mind or in your psyche, but it's not even fully formed yet. And but so when you, you know hear someone does? else ask it, you realize like, oh yeah, I've got that question too. You know what it does, John? It's like if you picture a magazine article or a, or a long read blog post that would have different sections that are in bold. Like that question is a section that's in bold. It enables the listener to reset a little bit. So even if it's not a question that they were going to ask or they were thinking, it just helps reorganize the talks. It doesn't, it doesn't make it <clears throat> so that it needs to be, sorry, I'm thinking in terms of from stage speech, but it doesn't need to be 45 straight minutes of talking. There's, there's little moments of, so, but wait a minute, what do we do if it, it enables yeah. the audience to catch back up? It also creates a great amount of tension because a good question actually create, yeah. creates a little bit of a crisis. And I think that this is a principle for public speaking. Um, and I don't have a ton of experience with public speaking and writing talks, so you can tell me um, that it's easy to just want your to want to make everything clear and peaceful. But there's something beautiful about coming out of the gates with a crisis, mm. with a question, with something that just everyone's just like, oh, yeah, oh, that's uncomfortable. I don't. Yeah. What's the oh. And then like now they want to know, how are you going to dig yourself out of this hole? And um, and then you've got, you know, the next 20 minutes to dig out of the hole. Wait, and, give, uh, give, can you give an example, please? I mean, it, it's great in theory, but. Okay, so I'll, here's an example from the Bible because that's been my world for the last few years. But um, I went and gave a talk on, on wisdom. What does the Bible have to say about wisdom? And there's this riddle at the beginning of the Bible. There's God plants a garden, puts the humans in it, and then he puts two trees, a tree of life, and the tree of knowing good and evil or good and bad. And he says, don't eat of the tree of good and bad. And um, but right before the story, you've learned that humans are supposed to rule the earth on God's behalf. And in order to like rule the earth, you got to know the difference between good and bad. Like this is like a fundamental thing that you're going to have to know. That phrase, knowing good from bad or good from evil in Hebrew, is just, it's like what, it's what a child learns when they become an adult. It's like maturity. It's like, like having a moral compass. It's like just becoming, um, uh, uh, someone who gets life. And, um, and so at the very beginning of the Bible is this puzzle, this riddle, God puts a tree saying, this is the opportunity to know good from bad and don't eat it or you'll die. Mm. What the heck? Why would he put th that tree in the middle of the garden after he said he wants you to rule the world? So the Bible like drops this weird like crisis, right? And like it just doesn't make any sense. And, um, and you're supposed to just kind of like puzzle on it because later passages in the Bible are going to address it and riff on it. And, um, 
And so, um, so I did a talk where I just kind of like, there's the tree. Let's just talk about how absurd this tree is. And that makes Christians really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) But then you got their attention. Oh, I love it though. Cause what you're doing is you're pushing the audience into the pool and you've, you've created the stakes for the whole presentation quickly, right? It's like, we got to figure out what this tree is about. And we're 45 seconds into the presentation. <laughs> yeah. And I need to know, I need to know more. So I love that idea. What did you say? The crisis? A crisis. Yeah. Create a crisis at the beginning, crisis for the audience. And now it feels like we're all helping this detective solve the case. Yeah. That's good. Chapter four, create a crisis. Create a crisis. What about when you've, when you've summarized, I think you did this at Epiphio where someone would give you a whole book. I can't remember who you did this for, but someone gave you a book. I did this with Tim Ferriss once. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Tim Ferriss one. Yeah, yeah. So the book's probably 300 pages. You're going to make a video that's three minutes, five minutes. Yeah. Like a book trailer. Yeah. Yeah. How do you decide what information goes in there and what gets cut? Um, and you don't need to talk about the Tim Ferriss one necessarily, but even when you're, when you're going through the Bible, it's like, well, there's a lot of stuff in here. (laughs) Yeah. You're looking for, um, you're trying to create the infrastructure of the idea. Um, and then that will allow the audience later to build whatever they want to on top of that infrastructure. Um, so meaning you're after kind of the big paradigmatic like ahas, like if you understand this and then this and then this, like you've got the big picture. Um, and that's really abstract. Uh, so usually any book is writ- is written off of just kind of one epiphany, right? Like, um, uh, I mean, we're joking about writing the explainer book right now. How, like, how is mastering the art of explanation? Hey, that's a good title. Um, <laughs> Lila Fever already got that. Um, how does helping people understand through things through explanation, how is that going to make you a better communicator? So that's just the key idea. And then why does that key idea matter? So you want to obsess about um, not what it is and explain all the ways that you're going to address it, but you want people to know why does that matter? Why does it matter mm. that you understand that? How is it going to change your life if you, if you um, interact with this idea? And so back in our explainer video days at Epiphio, it was this very simple, we called it, um, we called the exercise old story, nude story. It was very simple. It was like, you're living an old story, which is your current story. And it's your life without this service. What does this service do that creates a new story for you? What's the new reality that you get to live in because of the service? And that, and by, by addressing that, you're, addressing why does it matter um and that's the most important thing so let's apply that i am curious about that old story new story so that makes a lot of sense when there's a new app or a new bit of software or something when you're explaining the bible something that's more history are you using old story new story Mm, what's your approach there 
Well, the project with the Bible is we're trying to teach it as literature and help you understand how it works as literature. So there are big ideas there about um, what type of literature is it? What kind of literary skills do you need to have for it to come to life? Um, but then also, what are the big thematic ideas mm. that the entire Bible is wrestling with from beginning to end? Um, and we and we trace those. Um, and I think all of those things are trying to get at um, why does this matter? Uh, yeah, it's really easy to get bogged down in the details. Yep. And it's really easy, especially when you're in it and you're an expert in something, to think everything matters. Yeah. This detail yeah. matters. Yeah. Oh, and this is important. This is, you should know this. You got to know this too. Um, and so it does often take someone from the outside to kind of tell you like, actually, no, that's a side thing. I like to call them speed bumps because it's like, that's great. It's fun. It's just going to slow us down. And like what we're, we're at, we're, we want to keep going. Um, and so it's about getting rid of the speed bumps. If you could cut it out of the script or the speech or the whatever, mm -hmm. and the main point still shines in fact probably shines more then you got to get rid of it you just got to yeah. kill it got to kill the darling so yeah i mean i think this is just basic writing principles too no you're saying that but this is the stuff everybody struggles with and yeah. i you know i do a group coach and one of the things that we talked about a lot was just because you're deleting something doesn't make it bad it doesn't make it and it's not worthwhile it doesn't even make it and it's not something you would ever talk about because it might come up in q a right but it, it's like when we're putting together this this speech, video, whatever it is, that's the best of the best. I mean, that's the best five minutes it can be or it's the yeah. best 20 minutes talk. This is what I learned with, uh, I kind of started in media as an editor. And I, I remember this project where I went and filmed interviews of like five different people and I filmed them all for like 20 minutes each talking about this one idea. And I got back and I made a 10 minute edit out of this you know, couple hours of footage. And I was so proud of myself that I condensed it down to 10 minutes. Oh. And I thought, there's no way this could be any better and any sharper than what I've done. And um, then the person who wanted to use it said, actually, I need it to be five minutes. And I was like, well, it's going to suck. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll make you a five-minute version. <laughs> so I went in and I cut out five minutes. I cut out half of it. And then I realized this is better. This is actually more clear, more interesting. I don't miss anything that I cut out. And it was such a moment for me. And so then I thought, what if I made it two minutes? And so I did it again. And it was even better. And I just was like, this is weird. This mm -hmm. is really strange. I'm curious with the, the, how much time had passed between you cut it down to 10, got feedback, five, feedback, two. I don't remember, but I think one of my superpowers is that um, I can easily detach myself from something quickly. Yeah. You know, like that, like if you're writing a story or something, you put it in the drawer for six months so that you can come and read it for, like right. it's new. Right. That's what I was, that's what I was going towards. Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally true. Um, and that's true for me too. But there's something weird in my brain that like I can like write something and then a minute later, go back to it and kind of like, it feels new to me 
mm. a little bit. Um, so I think I think it's something wrong with the chemistry of my brain that I use for my own advantage. <laughs> <laughs> But and so that's most, chapter six. Yes. Mess no, with the chemistry of your brain. And most people would benefit from that. Like just, <clears throat> okay, look at it with fresh eyes. Look at it with fresh eyes. Look at it with fresh eyes. It shouldn't take six months to go back to it and realize. Yeah, that. it's called, I, I call it intellectual empathy. I'm a really bad at actual empathy. And my wife reminds me of this often. And she's right. And I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying, to get, trying to get better. Um. But I remind her that I have intellectual empathy, which is I constantly am aware of and thinking about what it is that you are understanding based off of the information that you have. Oh, and so that's what, oh, that's so good. That's so good. Intellectual empathy. Cause I yeah, feel like that's, that's what, that's what, sorry to cut you off, but that, that's how, especially when I'm leading a workshop or something, that's what's going through my head too is. Yeah. Do they get this already? Right. Is this too much? Is that too far? And have I and have I explained this idea yet? Do they get this other idea yet? Yeah. And um and when they hear me say this word, they could actually think I mean these three things. Do they, am I sure sure that they know that I mean this thing, not that thing? Mm -hmm. Um, all of that is intellectual empathy. Um, and I think I developed that from being a very insecure kid. Who was constantly trying to figure out what people thought about me? Like, hmm. well, now, but now we're, we're now we're doing a counseling session. No so. therapy, therapy. Let's speed bump, speed bump. Uh, well, that's good. That's good. Uh, let's talk podcasting. Your assertion. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I will read your email. That your assertion is that podcasting is a new form of public speaking. Yeah. Why would Tell me be? more. <laughs> well, you're speaking. Here we are speaking. John. For the public. Leads or is part of the Bible Project podcast, which hundreds of episodes deep. Yeah. One of the things that's cool about that, is, I mean, this is in every episode, but some of the episodes are ones where you and Tim are just, well, how do you want to do this part? Should we talk about this? Should we talk about this? And letting your mind wander. Tell me how you feel like it's okay. Obviously it's public speaking because by definition you were speaking in public, but like, but it is that, cool that we get to do it privately and we get to like, it's a different dynamic. Obviously when you're in front of people on a stage, it's a different dynamic and we have podcasted live and that's fun. Um, but when you're in a room with mics having a dialogue, it feels like you're having a private conversation. Like right now, it feels like we're kind of having a private conversation. But also yeah. at the same time, we're aware that other people are going to be listening to this. And so that's influencing us. Um, and so it's just a different form of public speaking. And uh, But it is public speaking, yeah. I'd put it in the genre. So What do I know? What, Don't I'm take my word for it. <laughs> you tell me, intellectual empathy, man. What What? <laughs> What are some of your, when you're doing a podcast with Tim, as much as to your point, it is this, well, but we're having a private conversation. You are aware that it's eventually going to publish. Yeah. Are there any particular techniques that you use or questions you ask or things you employ to make the podcast more interesting? I don't think so. You know, the podcast was an accident. We were already having these conversations 
in order to write the scripts to make the videos, which was the main thing we were doing. And then it just occurred to me, I'm enjoying these conversations so much. It's my favorite part of the week is mm. preparing to write the scripts with you, like getting this one-on-one -on -one lesson, walking through his notes, reading the Bible, asking him questions. And Tim's the kind of guy who is just not unnerved by questions. Yeah. So we got this great rhythm where it's like, I can, you know, you know how some people just get flustered by certain oh, yeah. questions? Yeah. And you just kind of know, or like, take okay, offense. Yeah. or take offense or yeah. you just, that just never happens. And, um, and so the, I just loved it. And so I thought, man, we should record these because if I'm loving it this much, other people are probably going to enjoy it. We started recording them. We put them up on, on a podcast RSS. And this was like six years ago. And for the last five, six years, we've been in the top 10 of religion and spirituality, like the whole time. Uh -huh. And all we do is are just having these conversations. And so we haven't really tr tried to do anything specific to, to make it work better or worse or anything. Um, we just kind of just have these conversations and, um, and I know I hear from people that they really enjoy feeling like you're just listening in on two yeah. friends talking about something. Um, there's just something really fun about it. It feels like you're in the backseat of a car listening to, you know, the, the person driving in the pa in their shotgun, like just geeking out together. And you're just yeah. you're just back there just enjoying their conversation. Um, and that's just a fun experience. But that, that is where I'll make a comparison to a speech because that's one of the things I always tell people is uh, my goal for a speech is for people to forget that it's a speech. Hmm. Uh, I, want, I want it to be basically one half of what you just described. A speech is John is on stage or Tim is on stage or insert person here is on stage and you like them so much and they've thought through things in such a way that they're present with you. It just feels like a conversation. You yeah. forget that they have yeah. to be on stage with the prayer thing and flags and all these other things. Yeah. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Now, here's, here's my follow-up question. Because we talked about intellectual empathy and we dance around the subject of audience, but I, I am curious about how the experience changes for you when you recorded a live podcast. I mean, are you mm. getting reactions where you would expect to get reactions? Mm. Do we prepare for that any differently? We don't prepare differently. Um, it's a different experience. Because uh, you're getting instant feedback from the audience. So you know if something was funny. You know if things are starting to get kind of boring. You know how uh -huh. you can just feel boredom in a room? Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so there's that instant feedback. Um, which is fun. Um, and then there's the dynamic of playing off of it, right? So um, that's just a new element. And we've only done it a few times. And both times it felt very natural and fun. And I would do it more, except that, and we can get into it, but I'm just, I'm very skeptical of public speaking for myself um, and for our <laughs> what organization. Does that mean? Uh, I, I think it, I think it'll turn me into a horrible person. I think, I think if I went around the country constantly speaking in yeah. public, I would become an egocentric, mm. narcissistic, just 
I don't know. I don't think it's it would be good for no, me. It certainly happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. People treat you like you're, you're so special. Mm -hmm. People were coming up and asked me to sign their Bibles afterwards. Stop it. It's like, Stop it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And what? it's like, and there's just a fine line between recognizing like, oh, yeah, like we're making an impact in people's lives. That's wonderful. And being like, man, I'm cool. <laughs> like, I'm... And then it starts to be like, oh, I wish everyone knew how cool I was. And, yeah. You know, and you're treated so well. And then you, you know, just the whole thing. I'm just, I, it worries me for myself. Well, that's why I like to be the coach more than the speaker. That's why I only speak a few times a year because oh. I don't, I, I, I see that potential and maybe, you know, I, I've been told before that I fast forward things too much. So what did my therapist call it? Uh, future casting where she would oh. say, she would yeah. say, okay, you're all the way up here, you know, like hand above your head and you're assuming that there's going to be this instant mm -hmm. slide yeah. all the way down here. Do you see how many steps there are in between? Yeah. Which I, I thought was good therapist, but my point there is just that those things do happen and you do have to be on guard for it. But that's what some people love about the game. Like that's actually the goal for certain people. <laughs> I mean, nobody yeah. would say it that way. I think I, and I think some people have a better, um, maybe just understanding of who they really are and can yeah. check their ego and, um, and, and maybe I could too, but it's just, I don't know if I want to deal with it. I've thought about it. Well, cause you've, it's not like you've never spoken on a stage before. I mean, I remember you speaking. At no, I have, thing. I've done, I've done things. I just went to South Carolina. So I have a friend who does a ton of public speaking. And I, I was a couple summers ago, I was like asking him, how would I do this? How would yeah. I start? Like, you know, how much could I make? How do you get into the circuit? All the stuff. And I just was picking his brain and he said, you know, I, um, I'll have you come and do one of my conferences. So I did that and it kind of confirmed to me, like, I love it. I love, I love the whole preparing a talk, giving the talk, but, um, but everything else is just being gone for a few nights. Uh, all the awkward interactions before and after I am an introvert. So I'm just kind of like, I just, the whole thing feels uncomfortable and, and, uh, and I'd rather figure out a way to, um, to create the same value and even make money in a, in a different way. Yeah. Um, which, which is kind of on me. I mean, because like, it's great to be able to go to a place and hear someone talk. That's a great experience, especially if someone you want to listen to. And so there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, yeah, I got my stuff. When you have prepared talks, what is your, what is your process? I would imagine you have some categories you think through that just enable you to skip the process that takes other people more time. Hmm. I don't I know. Like that's so like, what, I do what spend I... a lot of time. I just do a lot of writing. Like I'll, I manuscript any talk I give. Um, but, do you, and... but you don't sit down and you're like, this will be the beginning. This will be the middle. This will be the end. Or is that where you start? Uh, I'll outline. Yeah, I'll outline kind of the main ideas and then I will write every single word how I anticipate I'll say it and then I'll read it out loud and I'll rewrite it based off how I'm actually saying it 
and I'll go to a, I'll go to a lot of effort to make sure because here's the thing. My I mean everyone's worst nightmare is getting up on a stage and just choking, right? right. So yeah. I just like love to be prepared. Um, I'm a little less obsessive now, but my earlier like speaking stuff, it's just like I basically had the thing memorized. Mm. And um uh but there's also the, I just have this belief that like when you are asking for hundreds of people's attention. And the difference and here's the thing, it's like they can't escape. Like they're stuck in this room with you. <laughs> and let's say there's 200 people there and you're going to speak for a half hour. That's 100 hours of human consciousness that you're consuming, right? <laughs> like a Dark Lord of the Sith. You're just like... It sounds like Westworld or something. <laughs> it's like, give me your attention. I know you only have a thousand precious days of your life left, but it will come to me right now. And if you get up, if you get up there and you don't know what you're talking about or it's taking you too long to get your idea and it's confusing and it's boring it's like to me you're that's kind of like murder you're like you're taking away people's life that is going to look great in print it's kind <laughs> of like murder period i just like to be prepared yeah what are what are things you try to do with the? Uh, beginning and ending that those are things that are i feel like half of what i do for people is is make sure that they have a good strong clear beginning and good strong clear ending what's a bit of your strategy well we talked about opening with the crisis i do like yep. that um even if it's a small one um just kind of just you're you're disic disequilibrating yeah, like word. Sure. Disequilibrating. <laughs> okay, you go. Sorry. You're the one of the Bible podcast. You go. That's yeah. a that's a that's a word. That's a word. It's got to be a word. You just you know you're you're kicking them off their kill their rocker their axes and um, so I love that uh, endings. Um, yeah. Here's the thing: most people aren't going to remember most of what you talked about. So if there's a way to make it really poignant and memorable at the end kind of wrapping it up into the big idea kind of stated afresh in a way that's a little bit surprising but um also kind of feels like it completed something mm -hmm. um kind of like a good punchline to a joke it completed it but in a surprising way and um and that you'll remember that um so yeah endings are are really important um, and then in general, I just think keeping it short, like everything in the middle, like just everyone's going to forget that stuff anyways. So move through it quickly. Uh, let me let me translate that to speech people. John is not saying delete the middle, but what you are saying is, or I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think the mistake. I'm saying if you make. had a 30 minute talk and you can make it 10 minutes, make it 10 minutes. And if they wanted you to speak for 30 minutes, and you're like, this is more powerful as 10 minutes, then give the 10 minute talk. And then um, do a Q&A or something. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just more, more powerful. Uh, here's the other thing. is just like our attention spans are dwindling. And, um, and so it's, it's a battle of keeping people's attention. Um, and some people can keep your attention for 30 minutes. 
and that's really impressive. Um, but don't don't force it. It's interesting when people feel insecure on stage or feel like they might not be the right person to deliver this talk. They do something funny, which is they talk more mm. and keep going. And that, mm -hmm. that makes the problem worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you're not prepared, it's, you're going to overcompensate. Yeah. That happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have one more question for you and then we'll move into our big two questions to finish things off. All right. So we've talked about audience quite a bit. We talked about intellectual empathy. I feel like everybody that I talk to about speaking or any kind of media, even running a business, it always comes up, well, you got to serve your audience first. If you problem solve for your audience, then the sales will follow. Da, da, da. I don't disagree, but I am curious how you know where your audience is, what they know already, uh, how you know if you've over-explained something. Is that, because I'm just thinking about all the work you've done, whether it's been stage, podcast, explainer video, ad agency stuff. There, there's always, there always comes a point where it's like, I'm going to shoot the arrow and this is where I'm approximating the audience is. Yeah. I think I assume that the audience generally knows little. And so, um, I will err on the side of just anticipating that you probably don't know what this word means, or at least you don't know how we're using it. Mm. Um, you, and, and I think that's fine because for people who do get it, just kind of like allowing them that moment to affirm like, oh yeah, we're on the same page. Doesn't hurt at all. Right. Um, and so people, people are who are worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's often the case that a lot of people were like, oh, actually, I, I didn't think about it that precise. So thank you. That's a little bit more mm. precise and a little more, there's more clarity there than I had before, even though I wasn't thinking about it in a different, completely different way. So um, I think everyone ends up uh, benefiting. Um, so it's kind of starting at a pretty common denominator of like everyone's out of the loop. Pretty much everyone's out of the loop. And that's how I start even with my own discovery. With I, I start with the assumption that I'm out of the loop. Like, Ooh, even good. if it's something that I feel pretty aware of, like if it's like my fifth cloud computing script that I'm writing, or it's the fifth time we've read Genesis 2, or, you know, whatever. Like, there's something in me that always kind of goes like, you probably have no idea what's going on here. And it's kind of this good check of like, yeah, like, I'm let's throw all of my assumptions out the door. Like, let's try to look at this fresh. And I think that's really helpful for someone who's trying to make sure that they understand it enough so that you can explain it to someone else. So I think a, a, a writing coach told me this once that like, if you, if something's a little bit fuzzy in your head, it's going to be 10 times more fuzzy yeah. to the person you're explaining it to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just even a tiny, tiny bit of like, I think I get, but maybe not completely. Just that little bit of static in your brain is going to be an explosion of confusion for other people. And so you've got to just get to this crisp clarity to like, oh, I, I really, I really understand this in a really simple 
but not overly simplistic way. It's crystallized for me. And then, and then go from there, which takes a lot of work. Gosh, that's so good. Assume that I'm a little out of the loop too. It is so much easier to start a talk that way. Or start yeah. preparation that way. Oh, I love it, it is. And it's, it's counterintuitive though, because you're the expert, right? So like right. you're getting asked to come give a speech, you know, a speech on giving speeches or whatever you're doing. And you're like, oh, cool. Well, I know all the things. Um, there's something nice about just, it's hard. It's hard to like get out of your own like filters. Yeah. I, I love that though. One of the things that I've, I've found myself relaying to people because everybody is scared. The audience knows this already. Like oh. the, the worst fear. Really? Is everyone afraid is of that? Everybody, everybody, everybody oh, really? is. Yeah, they might not articulate it that way, but that, that comes out almost everybody I work with. Well, what if they know this already? But there's, there's a huge difference. I always, I always find myself saying, there's a huge difference between John's giving a talk on Genesis 2 and I get to sit down and John's administering a test and I've got Genesis 2 in front of me and he gives me 15 minutes to write down everything that I can versus all of that is top of mind. I think most people walk into a speech assuming the audience has all of that top of mind and that's almost never true. Right. Exactly. Yes. So assume they're out of the And loop. people they, love people love to like re-understand things. Yeah. They they love it. They love to like be like, oh yeah, I understood that, but actually that's even more clear. Like I understand that better now. Like that's a great experience. Um I think Malcolm Gladwell like really popularized the like, you thought you understood this, it's the opposite. <laughs> and um <laughs> like a lot of TED talks are built off of that. And um, I got to give you some brand new information you've never thought of before. Yeah. And that's cool. But there's a lot of power in just like this thing that you've kind of understood, but it's a little fuzzy. Let's sharpen that up. This is really, that's really fun too. Those are some of my favorite Bible studies I ever went to is when someone would, it's like virtually nothing happened. We would read through a text of the Bible. There would be some word that faith. And I'm like, yeah, what do you think faith is? And I'd say something. And they'd say, well, here's what, here's what it is in the Greek. And they would read it out loud. I'm like, oh, that's what faith is. And mm. you're right. Re-understanding or understanding at a, at a deeper level. Mm. That's like, a, I mean, that's a dopamine hit for your audience. It's all about the chemistry. All right, John Collins, we always end with two things. I feel like you might've just given us the tip, but I don't want to, I don't want to mm. force that on you. Uh, oh, we all, we tip? Always end, yeah. We always end with the speaking tip and then. Mm. Yeah. I didn't come prepared with speaking tips. So did we got one the, in the there? The audience one was really good. In my opinion, really good. Which one's the audience one? <laughs> Assume that you're a little bit out of the loop when you're sitting down to plan your own presentation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Chapter eight. And now. So we, we always finish with a story and the reason why is because stories are what stick with people. There are all different statistics about how much people remember. John the Explainer might not think of himself as a storyteller, but people do really remember stories. So we always love to 
have people end by telling a story. This could be something you told from stage, or it could be something that you just came up with right now. Whatever. We'd love to hear a story from the life of the explainer, John Collins. Oh, okay. I want to tell you a story about um, my time playing professional blackjack on a card counting team. So Wait a minute. Hold on. I forgot about this. There's a movie about this. Yeah, there's a documentary yeah. on the team uh, about the team I played on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know where you could watch it now. At one point, it was on Netflix, but um, it's called Holy Rollers. And uh, yeah, this was the team I played on. Okay, it it was so in. Well, so okay. Twenty. This story begins twenty years ago. I'm in college. I'm studying biotheology, and I have a friend named Ben, who. Um, called me up and said, hey, I'm coming down to Portland. I'd love to hang out. And he comes down to Portland. And Ben's a good friend of mine. I met him in high school. He's a great guy. We've, we've, we, we were very in tune with each other. We love to do stupid things together. Um, and he, he, he came down and said, hey, what are you doing? Let's go play blackjack at the casino in La Center. It's like a 45-minute drive away. And um, I was like, well, I don't play blackjack at casino. He's like, he took out like $2,000 in $100 bills. And he goes, I'm going to play. You're going to watch. I was like, okay. So we drive out to the center. He starts. And on the way, he's explaining to me that he's learned how to count cards. Like he read it in the back of a book. And, um, and this is how he's like making a living now for his family. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. So we get there and I watch him do it. Like at these, at these small casinos, um, you can bet up to $200 a hand. And so he would sit down and he would bet $5 a hand until the car, the count got good. And then he would go from one hand of $5 to three hands of $200 when the count got good. And then he would play those hands until the count got bad. Then he went back to $5 hands. And so we just played for a couple hours, just, just playing blackjack. And I just was mesmerized, like, what is going on here? And then the kicker was, um, he was like, you hungry? And we got comped. We got like a couple hundred dollars like in comps to go to the diner and just order whatever food we wanted. And so we're driving home and I've just got like styrofoam containers full of casino food. I'm going to eat like a king for like a week. And I'm stoked. I'm like, I'm not going to have to make top ramen for like 10 days. This is amazing. And I'm just asking him, did you feel good about this? Like I'm, you know. Like I'm studying the Bible. I grew up in the church. It's like you're in the den of sinners, like gambling. And he's like explaining to me, like, yeah, it's not illegal. It's like we're we're like Robin Hood, you know. We're taking from the rich and we're giving to the poor. And and in this example, he's <laughs> the casino's the rich and he's the poor. <laughs> in this example, so he feels good about it. And he, and then he like he gives me the sales pitch. He's like, do you want to do this with me? I'm kind of lonely, like going out on my own. And I was, I was engaged to be married and um, still finishing school. And I was like, there's no universe in which I'm going to be able to do this with you. And um, so we parted ways. A couple years later, I'm, I'm working at a church and I'm quitting. I'm deciding to be done at the church. And so it pops into my mind. I wonder if Ben's still playing blackjack. And so I call him up and um, I'm like, hey, Ben, I'm quitting my job. I've got a little bit of money I could play blackjack with. Will you train me? And at this point, 
like he had gone prime time. Like he was like, listen, man, you got some money. Here's what you need to do. Give it to me. I'm forming a team. I'm bringing in investors. This is perfect timing. Like we're going big. We're going all over the country. We're betting, you know, we're putting together a couple hundred thousand dollar bankroll. So I'm like, of course, why wouldn't I do this? So I put my money in with Ben. He's trained like all of these peers, mostly like guys from the Seattle area who are like a lot of ex-pastors, like how to count cards. And, um, and they put together a couple hundred thousand dollars. And the deal is that you all play with this money. You get paid an hourly wage. And depending on what kind of game you're playing and what type of casino and what the odds are and how much, whatever. So there's a calculated hourly wage. And then when the team has cleared $100,000 on top of paying out players hourly wage, we close the bankroll, pay out investors, we start over. So I, pl- I invested in and played on this team for a couple of years and we closed like 20 bankrolls and we went all over Ooh. the country. And uh, most, most of it's pretty boring. There's not a really a lot of fun stories. It's pretty just like you go in, you play, you either get asked to leave or you don't. Um, uh, but, but there is one story that I want to tell you, which was in Reno. Hold on. This was all a backdrop to the story. <laughs> it's all context. Yeah. So I'm in Reno and I get flyered, which means the casino thinks you're such a threat that they, they uh, send your information to every other casino. So I can't play anywhere. So I'm just, I've burned the place down. I can't play any casino. A couple years later, a friend of mine, you might know this guy, his name's Adam. He's like going back to Reno for a thing. And he's like, hey, we should go and we should try to play blackjack again. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, they probably forgot about me. So I go, same thing. Like no one's letting me play. No one's letting Adam play. And here's the thing. When we go on a blackjack trip, we don't book a hotel because usually a casino puts you up. Well, always a casino puts you up and no casinos even giving us a room. So like we aren't getting any table time. We don't have a place to stay. My friend Adam calls a friend outside of Reno. Can we crash on your couch? So we're going to go drive outside of Reno, crash on this couch, bust it out on this trip. And um, Adam's like, OK, I. I got to go cash out some chips across town and then we can go call it a night. And I said, you know what, Adam, there's one casino I haven't played. There's this casino called El Dorado. And the reason I hadn't played it was because there was this rumor, there's this lore that it was still kind of mob owned. Because all all casinos used to be mob owned, you know, like now, like they're all owned by like Disney and corporations and stuff. And so it's like they're not going to hurt you. But there's this one casino the El Dorado, where there's a guy that got thrown off the parking garage because of something, you know, like this place still don't mess with the El Dorado. And so um, I didn't play it on my first trip. I just got a player's card and they gave me some money to get a player's card. This happens when you're like playing with a lot of money. They'll just give you money. Um, but I didn't play on their table. So the second trip, I'm like, Adam, I'm going to go. I'm going to try to play a couple hands. At least maybe pay for our plane tickets. So I go into the El Dorado. I find a single deck blackjack table. 
I'm back counting it. I sit down. The count gets good. I put money out on the table. Three hands of $2,000 each. Play these hands. Count goes bad. I go back to just table minimum. And then this lady comes up behind me. And she's like, Mr. Collins. And I'm all jumpy. Oh, she I'm knows like, your name. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for like the mob to come. And I turn. It's this friendly lady. And she's like, hey, I'm a host here. And like, you need anything? You want some food? Like, we've got shows. You want to go to the show tonight? And I'm so flustered and, and just like ready to like just just get out of there as soon as I have to. Like, I'm just like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. And she's like, okay. And I go, no, 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 wait. Do you have a room? <laughs> like, I'd love a room. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course I get your room. So I, I play a couple more hands. She comes back with a room key. And she's like, here's a room. It's a, it's a suite on the top floor. And I'm just all of a sudden just so ecstatic. I just got some table time. I just made some money. I just got a room. Like, everything turned. Call up Adam. I'm like, Adam, I got a room at the El Dorado. This is awesome. Come meet me. I go upstairs. It's a nice suite. This was like 15, 20 years ago. So like there wasn't flat screen TVs, but there was this like TV that came out of the foot of the bed, like with a button, just like, you know, big, like just big, beautiful room. And I'm laying there just like so happy. And there's a knock on the door and I think it's Adam. So I go to the door and it's a bellman. And he's like kind of young guy, sheepishly looking at me going, um, I don't know what's going on, but, uh, I've been told to have you leave this room. And I was like, huh? Okay. He's like, I, I don't really know. I don't know what's going on, but the manager's coming up and he wants to explain it to you. And I was like, that's not necessary. Like, I'll just leave now. And so. I grab my stuff and I'm like blitzing out. I don't want to talk to the manager. Like maybe he's the guy that calls the hits. And so like I go to the elevator. I'm pushing on the elevator button. Elevator door opens. And seriously, like Sopranos guy. You just big, big suit, big arms, just big belly, just gruff dude. Just looking at me just like Mr. Collins. And he steps out of the elevator. And then his demeanor totally changes. He just brightens up and he sticks out his hand and he shakes my hand and he goes, you're good, but we're better. Oh, and he just was so happy to have caught me. I realized like as much fun as it was for us to like try to not get caught, it was just like they loved catching us. But I still I still was kind of unnerved. So and he, he said, never come back here again. Usually they're just like, hey, play any other game. Just no more blackjack. But he's like, never come here again. And I'm like, yes, sir. And I blitz it out of there so fast. And I call up Adam. I'm like, abort. Room's done. Like, where should I meet you? He's like, just meet me in the parking garage. Whoa. That's the end of the story. I assume you've never told that from stage. No, I haven't told that from stage. Okay, let's, let's, let's work on this. So what you want to do is, is there's like a... There's like a moral or a lesson at the end of it. Mm, the, the moral next thing that you're going to talk about, right? So, I feel like the "you're good, but we're better" is mm. a pretty awesome ending. Not what I thought would happen. Big smile on his face. So I, I'd like it to end right there. Yeah. What do you What do you feel like the moral or the lesson of this is? There actually is something interesting about audience in there. This might be a little bit of a stretch, but there's something interesting about 
I never thought, I always thought they would hate card counters and they would hate that part of their job. Uh Oh, no. I think most of them really do love it. I th um, They don't like it when you're being devious, like when you're disguising yourself or you're playing with a team. I mean, we are playing on a team, but when you play like, you're like communicating to someone else in the casino what account is on a table and you're like doing that kind of thing. Like they catch you doing that and they kind of get pissed and then yeah. they are, they're a little bit more gruff. Um, one time I did get what's called backroomed and they just like intimidate you and stuff. But for the most part, yeah, they're super friendly and they just like, I mean, it's the highlight of their day. Like they're just sitting there just like watching gamblers and just making sure like, fights aren't breaking out and people aren't trying to steal chips. And then like they get to um, catch a card counter. Like that's like they get to go home and tell their kids a cool story. What seems boring to you or what was I going to say? There's something well, out there. The person you think is your enemy maybe is also, maybe there's a, there's a strange alliance, right? Happening. And this actually happened with, um, a head of security for MGM became friends with one of our like top players and ended up giving him all this inside information about um, what they had information on him and our team. And this strange alliance happened because at the end of the day, like he, he, he loved the cat and mouse thing and mm -hmm. it kind of created a, a bond. Um, so maybe that's the moral of the story. Yeah. Something about, how to create a bond through shared experience, even if you don't realize it's shared. There's something. Well, even if you so. think the person is your enemy, that well, you that, yeah, I mean a... that's the that's the James Bond scene, right? You know, Mister <laughs> Bonds, we're not so different, you and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I've won card counting, so because like in the Ben Mesert book and all these movies make it seem like card counting is impossible, and they're nine people on the planet who can do it yeah it's not that hard right no it's actually pretty simple i mean like you can learn you can learn the theory of it in an hour and then if you just practice for a month pretty regularly you'd be able to do it, it takes a lot of discipline because if you start doing it a little bit sloppy it's easy for the advantage to go away and you're not even to realize it so it's easy, but it's hard. It's it's like maybe like, I don't know. I don't know what a good a good analogy. Bowling. Well, no. <laughs> uh, that's a perfect uh, one, actually. Uh, Bowling. You're just throwing a ball down the thing. That's easy. That's easy. But to be able to like consistently hit strikes. The exact spot you need to, because you have to play almost perfectly. That's what. It yeah, is. by perfectly that means you just have to pay attention to every card, and you have to do the math right. And the math is like fifth grade math, so that's mm -hmm. not the problem. Um, it's just the attention that you have to the constant attention. <laughs> but still, to this day, you can't go to a casino, right? Oh, some casino. I mean, I don't know. I haven't tried. Um, some casinos have kicked me out, like eighty six to me, a few. Uh, most most were just like don't play blackjack anymore. Mm. Um, so yeah, I can go to I can go to casinos. I can go to the casino, you guys. Uh, John, this has been really fun for me. Where can where can people? I hope it's been fun for you. Intellectual empathy. 
Uh, where can people learn more about you or whatever you would like them to learn more about? Um, that's, a, that's a bad way of saying where can they find out more about the Bible Project? Oh, Bible Project. Yeah. Yeah, you can see what we're doing at Bible Project at BibleProject.com. Um, and we have an app. So it's a Bible Project app on your phone. Uh, you can interact with me mostly via Twitter. And when I say that, I'm not super good at following up with like DMs and stuff on Twitter, but that's the one place I'm at. So no, John PDX, J O N PDX on, on the Twitter. J O N PDX. I feel like you show up every three weeks and reply to a bunch of stuff and then go back to your hole. <laughs> yeah. John PDX. John PDX, so it's good to see you, my friends. I'll let you yeah, know good to see you, man. Back in town. Uh, yeah, please friends, do. This has been the Best Speech Podcast with John Collins. Thank you to John for stopping by. Thank you to Alicia Otiena for editing this thing and for producing it. Thank you to Jonah Ramey for the music. Jonah so Ramey does time. your music? Jonah Ramey. Wow. That's good. Thank you to Jonah Ramey for the music. Until next time, my friends, do good things out there.